Welcome to Church on the Edge, a podcast designed to challenge you and help you rethink what church is and what church should be. This is your host, Dan Armistead. You can learn more about me at my website, danarmistead.com, so please check it out. I want to begin the podcast today by sharing a story with you. It's a It's a story of how God led my wife and I from Seoul, after almost 12 years of ministry, back to the United States. And I want you to know that uh, it's going to take a little time for me to tell this story, but uh, we have two episodes left in this second season of Church on the Edge, and we've been talking about the journey of faith. We've been uh, looking at Abraham's faith journey as we kind of reflect and consider on our own faith journeys. And like our journeys, the journey of faith always has an end point, and Abraham is nearing the end of his journey. And so in these last two episodes, we're going to be looking at Abraham's legacy, the legacy established, and we're also going to be talking about establishing our own legacies. Now, the truth is we're never too old. For that matter, we're never too young to start considering, reflecting, and working toward legacies that honor our calling, whatever that calling is, however it's being expressed in our lives, whatever we do, whatever our career is, whether it's picking up garbage or pastoring a church or anything in between, all of that. But the idea is that you and I work toward legacies that honor our calling and that honor, most importantly, the Lord who called us, Jesus. And so with that said, I want to take the time to to share the story of how God led my wife Sherry and I back from Seoul, Korea, after, again, almost 12 years of ministry. Now, Sherry had uh, worked as a nurse, and still, as a matter of fact, is working as a nurse, uh, most of the years we'd been married. We were definitely a two-income family, and so when we began talking with the pastor search team from Seoul International Baptist Church, one of the things that we really needed to talk to them about was, was how important it was for Sherry to find a job if we were to move to Seoul. Were there any opportunities, we asked, for, for nurses from the United States? And, well, it turns out there were. And so Sherry, after about a year, a little over a year, was hired by the 8th Army base as a civilian nurse. It turned out to be an incredible blessing for us. Not only did we gain access to that Army base, which we called Little America, with its restaurants and PX to go shopping at, oh, and the commissary where we could buy U.S. groceries, grits and bacon, hamburger meat and steaks. I mean, beef is incredibly expensive in Korea, but in the commissary, it sold at U.S. prices. But in addition to that, we also had access to a lot of our church members because they were military or civilian employed and and lived on the base. And we got to go visit with them there in their homes. I had opportunities to speak on the base at various conferences and events. I spent a whole weekend with the pastor and several leaders from the gospel service. All were black Americans, and and they had callings just beyond their service in the Army. In fact, many of them were, were finishing their time in the Army, and they were headed to pastor churches or begin their seminary work. 
And I had the opportunity of spending a whole weekend with uh, those guys. It was fantastic. Something else we did. We used to bring uh, church members from countries other than the U.S. onto the base. We had the privileges. We were able to check them on uh, as long as they stayed with us. And so these people from all these different countries got to eat at United States restaurants, American food. And I want to tell you, for our members who had never visited the United States, they got a little taste of American cuisine, and it was a thrill to them. Some of those visitors actually came from places like China and Iran and Pakistan. And, of course, we had to get special permission in advance even to check them on because of the tensions between the U.S. and their countries. But, I, again, I tell you, it was a treat. And, and they got a taste, all of these people, a little taste, of, literally, of what it was like in the United States. We used to love taking people on the base during Christmas time because, I mean, it was all decked out. Decorations, lights, trees, everywhere. It was awesome. In fact, one of our favorite uh, Christmases, it was Christmas Eve, and uh, we took some friends to a very nice restaurant on the Army base. My Marine son and his wife had made the two-hour flight from Okinawa where he was stationed, And we, together with them, and two young Chinese ladies who had come to know Jesus, had a wonderful Christmas Eve meal on the military base. And so that army base just became a place of ministry for us and a place of great blessing. Anyway, back to Sherry's job. It was important. Our two daughters were in college, and we needed the extra income. Like I said, we've always been a two-income family. Of course, that's changed, actually, in the last few years. The kids are all in their 30s. Sherry's still working, as I mentioned. And, in fact, I'm working, too. I'm just not getting paid. (laughs) But I can tell you this. Church on the Edge, for me, is a full-time labor of love. I love what I'm doing, and it is definitely full-time. Kind of reminds me, I, I think of myself like Babe Ruth the famous baseball player, you know, for the New York Yankees, who was playing amateur ball when he was approached and and offered a contract to play for the Yankees, money to play baseball. And the babe said, you mean you're going to pay me to do what I love to do? And, of course, he signed the contract. Well, that's how I feel about what I do. I mean, I've done this now for close to 40 years, teaching God's Word, encouraging others in the faith. And I tell you, I'm so blessed to have a wife who immediately after we got married, started working to put me through seminary, and who now is working to help support this labor of love, which we're both committed to and both called to Church on the Edge. So Sherry got a job on the 8th Army base. And for over nine years, she worked on the Army base in Seoul. Now, I need to tell you, that the Department of Defense regulations generally allow for only five years in any overseas position. Fortunately for us, most people don't really want to work in Korea for any years, and they're really missing out, I'll tell you that. Most people want to go to, to Europe, to Germany, Italy, Spain, England. The last place they really want to go is Korea or Asia, and again, boy, they're missing out so much. But, but it was because of that 
that Sherry's contract, which uh, had to be renewed every two years, Sherry's contract was extended several times until she reached her ninth year. And then she was looking at an extension that would put her into double digits, and that's when her contract was not extended. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Because the way things work with the Department of Defense is that once your contract is not extended, you can continue to work in your particular place of employment, but your resume is put into the system. And whenever there's a job out there that matches your skills and abilities, your resume is sent to that particular place. And if the leaders there decide it's a good fit, well, you get a job offer and you either take that job or you're out of the Department of Defense. Now, the thing about it is, until that job offer comes, you can keep working where you're at in your current place of employment. Now, at this point, I need to tell you that neither Sherry nor I really expected to leave Seoul. She only had one year left before she would be eligible for vested retirement and all the benefits that came with it, most important, health insurance. And although, you know, the truth is we didn't worry too much about health insurance in Korea, which has a fantastic national health care system, not only for its people, but even non-Koreans have that available to them. And, And the medical prices in Korea are nothing compared to the United States. And I will tell you, they are every bit as good, maybe better in some ways. We had uh, both received annual physicals. We got full tests every year, tests that would cost about $20,000 in the United States. And and really, the insurance company would not have even paid for annual tests. But we were able to get annual tests that cost a little over $1,000 in Korea. What's really funny about that is that our insurance company, which is a very well-known, reputable insurance company, would still haggle with us over some of these costs. By the way, I want to tell you, that's been one of the greatest culture shocks uh, for me, for us, uh, coming back to the United States is, is health care. Wow. J- just wow. Anyway, uh, Sherry's resume is in the system. Uh, a job offer could come at any time. But, you know, the two of us are thinking, well, God's just going to let us get through this year. Sherry's not going to get a job offer. God's going to work an incredible miracle, and and she's going to retire, and then we're going to stay here in Korea for many, many more years to come. Well, that's not what happened. Because after just a few months, a job offer came, and we had a decision to make, and we had less than a week to make that decision, but, but it kind of was already made for us, and I'll get to that in a minute. But we prayed and we decided, uh, yeah, Sherry needs to take the job and move back to the United States and uh, work for a year and then retire and move back to Seoul with the, with the benefits that we needed. But then there's Proverbs 16.9. You know what it says. People make their plans, but God determines their steps. That's what happened to us. We had our plans. We had it all mapped out. We thought God would do this, but God didn't do this. God did that. So we made our plans so that God determined our steps. And I want to tell you that has been true of our lives and ministry 
all these years. I never expected when I began this journey of faith that God would lead me and lead my wife to the places that he has. But I'm going to tell you something. I wouldn't have it any other way. I've shared in previous podcasts, and I've written about this in my book, Masterpiece in the Making, but I was very, very prideful in my younger days. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not ready yet to write that book entitled My Humility and How I Attained It, but I'm not nearly as prideful as I once was. But when I graduated from seminary, I just assumed that in a few short years, I was going to be at the top of the denominational food chain. I was going to be pastor of some big old megachurch. In fact, and I've never told this story, that's one of the benefits of, uh, uh, of no longer pastoring from the pulpit. I, you know, you kind of have to be a little careful about what you say and don't say. People can misunderstand it. The good thing about Church on the Edge and my ministry here is, you know, again, I'm not getting paid. And uh, I can pretty much say what I want to say, and there are some things that need to be said. But anyway, I want to tell you this story uh, at the risk of, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe you misunderstanding what I'm saying. But one of my preaching professors was Dr. Jess Northcutt. Um, the Northcutt Preaching Lectures at my seminary and another major college are named for uh, this great preacher. Jess Northcutt. And Dr. Northcutt, I had taken him for several courses, advanced preaching and several other preaching courses. But he recommended me for a significant church in Fort Worth, Texas when I graduated from seminary. But because I wanted to pursue my PhD, I I decided to take a smaller church where I'd have time to do my studying and adequately pastor the church. And just this week, the man who ended up taking that church, that the man who that church called to be its pastor is now a candidate for the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I, I know I'm chasing a few rabbits here, but you know we're going to be talking about legacies, I said, and we're going to be talking about leaving legacies on our journeys of faith. And naturally, at 64 years of age in a new ministry, I'm starting to think more and more about legacy, which, as I've said, is a good thing to think about at any age. Anyway, my wife and I were talking the other night about uh, some major issues in the Southern Baptist Convention, issues that, frankly, I'm glad I never had to be a part of. If I had been in some large church and become a part of the denominational leadership, I would have had to deal with some things that, frankly, I'm glad I never never had to be a part of again. Uh, In fact, the truth of the matter is, Sherry and I are attending another church now, a church that's not a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's a small church, and and man, we love it. But Sherry and I were talking, and, and we were just thanking God that whatever plans I had made were not God's plans. And we paused right then and there. And we thanked God for that because we are so happy where we are right now. There's nowhere I'd rather be right now than where I am, I'll tell you. And there's nothing I'd rather be doing right now than what I'm doing. But Sherry got that offer and and she took the job and we resigned ourselves to the fact that we were going to be apart for a year. 
Now, again, we're going to get to Abraham, and we're going to talk a lot about Abraham's legacy. These last two episodes are devoted entirely to that subject, but I really want you to hear all of this story because it's amazing what God can do in our lives, even when he does things we're not expecting or does things we'd prefer that he not do. When Sherry got that job offer, she was really back in the United States. Our son had been in a motorcycle accident. He had been transferred from Okinawa back to the United States. He was working in marine recruiting duties, and he slid his motorcycle off a mountain and went through multiple surgeries to save his leg. And Mama stayed with him during his recovering. She took emergency leave. I think that leave, as guaranteed by United States law, was like three months So she was able to stay with our son, who otherwise would have had to go to a nursing home. He couldn't get around with his leg, couldn't get out of bed for the longest time, and Mama wasn't going to have her baby do that, so she stayed with him. Anyway, I'm back in Seoul in the meantime, and uh, pastoring our church, serving as pastor of another church that we had begun, uh, had about two years into that church. It was a lot of work. And, of course, I was teaching at the seminary at the same time. But one day I had lunch with a a church member, a good friend from England, Simon, a young man. Simon had married uh, Rachel. That's her English name. She's Korean. And Simon and Rachel and Sherry and I had become good friends in spite of our age difference. And and Simon and I, just the two of us, decided to have lunch one Saturday afternoon. As we're having lunch, he shared with me about a book he was reading. And there was something in that book that had had spoken to him. God had just given him a word. I, I don't remember what it was. But the book was entitled Gift from the Sea by Anne Morrow Lindbergh. It was written in 1955 while Anne spent some time alone on Sanibel Island down in South Florida. It's not an overtly Christian book, but when you read it and see who she quotes and some of the things she says, you kind of get the feeling that Anne probably was a pretty strong Christian. Anyway, it was written in 1955, and uh, as I said, and uh, in the book, uh, she talks about seashells. And as she's describing these different seashells, whatever kind they are, she, she launches into lessons about life. And so Simon was sharing with me something he had read in her book that, that God had really used in his life. And I don't remember what he, he had read and what he shared with me, but I, I know this. As he was speaking, something stirred in my spirit. And I said to Simon, would you send me a message with the title and author of that book? Now, I do that a lot of times. And let me say this. Sometimes we hear God or we think we sense God and we think, well, that was a word from God. I'll never forget that. Wrong. I've gotten in the habit when I think I hear something from God, I'll journal it down. I'll write it. I'll put it somewhere or ask somebody to send me something so I don't forget what God said. Because believe me, we can So I asked him to send me the the book title and the author, and I ordered it on uh, iBooks, and I was reading it. One day I was on the bus back from our church, and I was reading Gift from the Sea, and I came across these words. Now keep in mind, these were written by a woman in the 1950s to women in the 1950s. But through these words, God spoke very clearly to me. Here's what she said. I'm quoting now. 
Woman must come of age by herself. This is the essence of coming of age, to learn how to stand alone. She must learn not to depend on another. She must find her true center alone. She must become whole. End quote. Now, I read those words one day before my wife called or sent an email, actually, to tell me about the job offer and the decision we had to make. This was in October of 2018, and like I said, Sherry was back in the, in the U.S. with our son. I was on a bus in Seoul. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon. I can remember exactly where the bus was, and I can remember it as if it were just a moment ago when I read those words, I knew, I knew, I knew that Cherry was going to get a job offer and that we were going to have to spend a year apart. God was preparing me. God was preparing us for that separation. Now, to make this even clearer how big a deal that was, for, for many years, our children have said, about their father. You know, if mom goes first, dad's never going to make it for long. And and I pretty much agreed with them, you know. I, I'm very dependent on my wife. My own father died eight months after uh, his wife, my mother, died. But I want to tell you something. The moment I read those words on the bus, I realized two things, two things that God was very clearly placing on my heart and just writing there deep in my spirit. The first thing was this. Sherry was going to move, and we were going to be apart for years, I said. But the second thing was this. However much I love my wife, and I love her immensely, but however much I love my wife, maturity in Christ becoming emotionally, spiritually mature will always lead us to the place where if we need to be, we can be alone. And in the words of Ann Lindbergh, we can find our true center alone and become whole. And actually that's what happened during that year apart for both of us. Sherry took the job, and again, we, we were thinking at the time she would be back in a year. That's all she had to do is work one full year, and she could get her retirement and come back to Seoul. And so after 35 years of marriage, we were separated by God's plan, and we were learning, the two of us, to live alone and to be whole. Thank God for FaceTime, Messenger, and video calls. We spoke almost daily but now here's where the story really gets interesting. We, we had just brought a young man and former member of our church from many years before. He'd been in the Army, but now he had retired after 20-some-odd years. And even when he was in Seoul, I knew he had a clear call from God to serve as a pastor. So, so when he retired, we contacted him about coming and serving as the pastor of the, the new church just outside the relocated Army base. It was in Pyeongtaek, Korea. So we flew him over, and, and the church voted, decided to call him to be their pastor. 
And that night, uh, he came back and stayed with me in the apartment in Seoul. The next morning, we had breakfast together, and he left for the airport. And I came back home, and, and I was thinking to myself, you know, what a relief. Finally, we have a pastor for this church plan. I've just invested so much time, and we invested a lot of our money and energy, and the people had worked so hard for two years to, to get it up and running, get it off the ground, and now everything was ready. And so I thought, they have a new pastor. I'm going to have a lot more time on my hands, and, and I've got things that I want to do. And I had books I wanted to write. I had conferences in places like India and Myanmar and Uganda and Kenya. And I was just visioneering, you know, just dreaming, contemplating all these things I wanted to do. And that's when the Spirit of God spoke again. And I heard him very clearly. Your time is finished. You're leaving. Now, not immediately, and I knew that, there was work to be done uh, to get ready to pass the church on to the, the next pastor. I was actually the first pastor of this church. They had had missionary pastors, but I was the first full-time pastor of this church, and, and I knew I had a lot to do just to get the church ready to pass on to the next pastor, whoever that was. Now, I shared this with one other person, my executive administrator, Kerry Smith from Canada, Carrie's uh, a fantastic guy. I don't know what I would have done without him because I am not an administrator. Uh, but uh, I shared this with Carrie and only Carrie. But it was about a month later. It was a Wednesday night. And again, I, I remember this vividly. I was in bed at 9.30 in the evening. I had an early day the next day. And again, God's Spirit spoke. And I knew what I was supposed to do. God said, I want you to contact Pastor James Lynch about the possibility of becoming the pastor of the church. Now, James was a young man. He was 33. He had a church that met in our building on Sunday afternoons. They couldn't find any other space. They'd had other spaces, but the rent kept going up. And anyway, we opened our building to him and his church. I got to know him fairly well. He was, a, he was a man with a very clear call to ministry and to Korea. His wife was teaching at an English prep school, and she was supporting the two of them uh, as, his, as he was planning churches and evangelizing. But I knew that God wanted me to talk with James about the possibility of placing his resume for consideration as pastor of the church. Ultimately, it would be the church's decision, but yeah, I just wanted to know if he was interested. I felt like God was calling him to be the man. Well, that was a 9.30 on a Wednesday night. The next morning, I got up, quickly checked my messages, and there was a message from James. He was asking if I could somehow make some time to get together with him for coffee, and uh, so we set up a meeting, and and uh, James had no idea when we met that God had spoken to me in any way. He had no idea uh, uh, about this at all. And I had no idea why he wanted to meet with me. Now, I know this sounds almost unbelievable, but when God, together with James, wanted to talk about joining me, or, or, let, me let, let me say that again. When James and I got together, I began to share with him a little bit of what God had spoken to me, and James shared with me something that had happened to him that same Wednesday night. Now, this was a couple of weeks after that when we finally got together. 
But that same Wednesday night at 9.30, James had called his father and said, Dad, I want you to pray with me about something. Uh, I'd like to maybe ask Pastor Dan about becoming an associate pastor and working along beside him. And maybe in a few years, he's aging, he's getting a little older. Maybe in a few years, uh, I could become pastor of the church. And when James told me that story and told me the time, my mouth just dropped open. It was an amazing thing. All right, now I'm going to fast forward, okay? After several months of meetings between the leaders in James's church and the leaders in our church, a decision was made to allow both churches to vote on whether or not to merge and call James Lynch as the new pastor. Now, I want to make something clear. I was not in on any of these meetings, <laughs> And I never told that story to anyone. In fact, the story that I just shared with you about the Wednesday nights, I told that story on December 1st, 2019, the last day that I served as pastor of the church. It was one week after the churches had voted to merge and call James, and I shared what God had done. But before that, I left everything alone. I just trusted God to work it out, and he did. And a week after my last message in December of 2019, I got on a plane and returned to the United States to be with my wife and to launch this ministry, Church on the Edge. And it's kind of a postscript here. You know, the pandemic hit the world two months later. And Sherry and I have often reflected, just talked about how long would we have stayed apart? You know, I don't know. But what I do know again, is that people make their plans, but God directs them every step of the way. Legacy. Things that matter. That's the title I've given for this 11th episode in our series entitled Journey of Faith. And I've spent a lot of time reading and praying and studying, meditating on this idea of legacy. I, I've read the rest of the story of Abraham after his crisis of faith at Mount Moriah, read it several times, read what others have had to say about it. And I got to tell you, Proverbs 16, 9 really sums it up. We make our plans, but God directs our steps. Abraham had no idea what was waiting for him outside the border of his own country. When God showed up one day and said to him, follow me to a land I will show you, and Abraham said, let's go, he had no idea what was waiting for him. Now, that is both the struggle and the excitement that comes with this journey to which Jesus calls you and me. It's filled with surprises and tests. And as we've noted, it's filled with detours and, and landmarks. Times when we stray away, we become faithless, we lose our way. And times when we encounter significant events that become landmarks on the journey. And what a landmark that last year in Seoul was for me and for my wife back in the U.S. And by the way, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you I hear God speak that clearly that often. I don't, but I think I was just in a place during that last year where I needed to hear God and where God was gracious enough to open my ears to clearly hear him when he spoke, and that's why he spoke so many times with such clear direction. Anyway, 
that landmark year of 2019 saw God work in both of our lives to help further us along the legacy that we want to leave for our ministry and a legacy that points to Christ. You know, while we were apart, Sherry actually purchased a home all by herself. Um, I moved into that home sight unseen when I came back from Korea. And, and I'll tell you again, both of us grew in ways we never imagined during that time. But, but it was a difficult time, and God stretched us during the journey. And now, more than ever before, both of us are thinking not only about where we are in the journey now, but again about the legacy that we're to leave behind in Christ. But now I want you to listen to the words of Genesis chapter 22 and verse 20. Now these are the words immediately following Abraham's experience with Isaac on Mount Moriah when he rose, lifted that knife to sacrifice his son, and, and just three words say it all. Listen, Genesis 22 verse 20, after these things. Now that is a phrase that appears often in scripture after these things. Google it sometime on a Bible search. See how often it appears after these things. And when that phrase appears, it almost always refers to a major transition. And that is clearly the case here in the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham again begins in Genesis chapter 12. It reaches its climax of faith when Abraham is tested in Genesis 22 at Moriah. And now in the chapters that follow that crisis of faith, the writer is going to focus on the conclusion of Abraham's journey of faith. And specifically, he's going to focus on three things. And they are three of the most important things when it comes to talking about legacies. And here's what they are. The three things are children or births, if you will, marriages, weddings, and death and funerals. Births, marriages, funerals. Now, let me walk you through the story of these three things as, as they're found in Genesis chapter 22 through 25. After these things. The first thing the writer tells us about is the death of Sarah. And since Abraham is not a citizen of the country in which he lives, he owns no land, and he doesn't have a place to bury his wife. But he negotiates, and he's able to purchase a piece of land with a cave so that he can bury his wife Sarah in that cave. Now, this is one of those things that's so easy to overlook when we read Scripture. I think about it, a burial plot a cave on a piece of land bought by a foreigner. But this is, this is how Abraham got land because now Abraham owns land. This little plot in all of Canaan belongs to him. It's not much, but it's a beginning. God had promised all the land to Abraham and his descendants. And now after his obedience at Mount Moriah, when he was ready to give up his son, God not only gives Isaac back, but he gives Abraham the first real ownership in the land of promise. Small beginnings are God's way. God loves mustard seeds. 
And God takes the mustard seed beginnings in our lives and he multiplies them just like Jesus did the loaves and the fishes. And what seems insignificant and unimportant becomes a foundation for our future. Now that right there may be a word for somebody listening today. Your small beginnings are the foundation that God will use to do great things in later days. That's how legacies begin, with the small things, the insignificant things. And what became the promised land of Israel began as a little piece of land with a cave to bury a man's wife. Now, that's the first thing we read after the story's climax of Abraham's crisis of faith on Mount Moriah. It's interesting, but an entire chapter is devoted to the purchase of this burial plot, which, by the way, cost Abraham a pretty penny. It wasn't cheap. You know, you read through that chapter, and the words are so gracious. Uh, They're back and forth. Oh, what's this between friends? But really, this was just kind of bargaining going on. And uh, witnesses are called in at the city gate to, to say that the transition is legal. And now that the transaction is done, Abraham gets his land. But the fact is, the homeboys took advantage of old Abe. And then comes the marriage. Immediately after the death of Sarah is the, the marriage of Isaac. Abraham sends his servant back to Haran to get a wife for his son. Uh, Arranged marriages were common, you know, in those days, so this is no surprise. But Abraham's servant finds Rebekah, who is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother Nahor. She's a cousin of Isaac, which, again, was common in those days. It was a way of the times. Kissing cousins were common back in that day. What's interesting here, though, and it is directly connected to Abraham's legacy, is the fact that Isaac's wife did not come from the people of Canaan, but from his own people. And there's an important reason for that. Now, don't think that Abraham's some kind of ancient racist. He's not. Here's the deal. If Isaac were to take a bride from Canaan, his children and their grandchildren and their children would end up becoming indigenous, no different from the Canaanites, no different from that culture. They would be absorbed and they would lose their identity And along with it, likely their religion, their their God, if you will, which happened pretty easily to Israel anyway, if you know the history of the people. And so Abraham wanted to get Isaac a wife from his own people. He knew that that would help kind of secure his legacy and the identity of his people and the God of his people. And I I want to add here that, that things are really very different today. You know, I just concluded an interview this morning with Santosh Bardham from India. I hope you'll take time to listen to it. But uh, Santosh ended up marrying a girl from Mississippi in the United States. (laughs) Let me tell you, there's a big difference between Mississippi and any place in India, even the most rural parts of India. When I was talking with Santosh about uh, uh, the many mixed cultural marriages that I've seen over the years, and especially the children of those marriages, just just awesome. They grow up, most of them speaking at least two, if not several different languages. Uh, they're able to move easily from one culture to another. And, and I believe that God is going to use a lot of these mixed cultural marriages in the days ahead to bring people from all tongues, tribes, and nations in, into his kingdom. 
Sadly, there's still a lot of resistance and opposition to mixed marriages today. But let's just remember there's always been opposition to God's ways and, and God's will. Anyway, Abraham's servant finds Rebekah, and Rebekah becomes Isaac's wife. And I want to read to you these words from Genesis chapter 24, verse 67. And Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of his mother Sarah and took Rebekah to be his wife. Isaac loved her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. And can't you just imagine how Abraham felt? Seeing his son happily married, knowing that in his mother's absence he now had a wife who he could love and, and who would love him back. I tell you, I look at my children, and we've had one divorce among the three. Uh, that, that one who's been divorced has been remarried since, but I'm so blessed to see their happiness. I'm so blessed to see them together with, with significant others, my, my two son-in-laws and my daughter-in-law, just to know that they love each other. And by the way, if, if you're listening and, and you're in the midst of a divorce right now, either for yourself or, or maybe one of your children, or for that maybe, matter, maybe your parents, I want to share something with you that, that someone many years ago shared with me, and that's this, God's plan. God's plan B is just as good as God's plan A. I want to say that again. God's plan B is just as good as God's plan A. And only God can do that kind of thing. When life comes crashing down, when our hopes and dreams just seem to shatter into broken bits, God can bring forth new life. That's what he does. That's the message of the Gospels. That's the promise of the empty tomb, life after death, new life, joyful life, abundant life. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. No matter what, God can take what is broken. No, listen, God can take what is gone from your life and he can still do something wonderful. He can bring something new and good. Only God can do that. But Sherry and I look at our three children and their spouses, and I got to tell you, we are blessed to see their love and their partnership. I don't think there's any greater legacy than that. In fact, that's something God has been speaking to me quite a, a bit about in this last year, ministry to my children and that simply means, you know, spending time with them, getting together with them. We were apart for so long. We got to see each other a bit during those 12 years. But, I mean, we left for Korea, and, boy, it was tough. Some of you may have read my post after our car broke down in, in New York over Christmas. We had gone to visit our daughter, and the whole family actually came up together at her home. And... Uh, when the car broke down, Sherry had to fly back home to go to work, but I stayed while the car was, was in the process of getting fixed, new transmission, and I stayed with my daughter and her husband for about a total of six weeks. And I want to tell you, that time with my daughter and with my son-in-law, it took our relationship to a new place. We were close before, 
But now we are in a different place. And I tell you, my son-in-law, <laughs> he hugged me as I got ready to leave. After the car was all fixed, I was getting ready to hop in it and head back home to Florida. And he hugged me. And you'd have to know, you'd have to know him and his sense of humor. But he hugged me and he said this, hey, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it'd be. <laughs> and the funny thing about those six weeks was the fact that it was unplanned. It was a result of a transmission going out of a vehicle that had only 50,000 miles on it. Now, I can tell you that was a crisis of faith. And at the same time, it turned out to be an incredible blessing. On this journey, wherever you are, expect surprises. Good, wonderful surprises. Some of those surprises will come wrapped in packages that are really tests of faith, even crises of faith. But just know that even then, God is working and God is growing you. He's stretching your spirit. He's building your character. And he's establishing a legacy, even in the midst of some of the most difficult trials of faith and difficult days you can ever know. That's one reason I took the time to share that story about our separation. And I want to say something for some of my younger listeners. The legacy you leave is being built right now. The decisions you make, the courage you demonstrate, often doing things that aren't easy to do. Sometimes laying, laying careers, laying opportunities on the line because you know that your character won't let you. You know that this is not what God's calling you to do. I'm a big supporter of Dr. Russell Moore. Dr. Moore was the former head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He finally resigned from his position in the commission and his place among Southern Baptists. And, and really, this is a guy that could have been one of the big shots, one of the top dogs in the Southern Baptist Convention. But his faith and his commitment to Christ would not allow that sacrifice of character. And he knew that he couldn't do both and be faithful to Jesus. In my book, Prophets or Patriots, how evangelicals are giving to Caesar what belongs to God. I, I talk about Dr. Moore and his courage and the courage and commitment and obedience it took for him to, to lead with integrity when so many others were selling their birthrights for poison stew. But I want to tell you today, listen to me. Your legacy is built day by day, moment by moment, decision after decision. And when the crises come, when you have to make a choice between pleasing others or following Jesus, between your own pride and ambition and the praise of people and the way of God's kingdom and the way of Jesus Christ, you will find the courage and you will find everything you need for your journey of faith. Well, that's it. One more podcast in this second season, this series, Journey of Faith. And when we come back next week, we're going to look at the final days of Abram's journey, finish talking about those final days, all the way up to his own death, 
as the journey of faith that he began so many years ago. 175 years old was the age of Abraham when he died. But that journey of faith comes to an end. And we're going to talk next week about those things that guide you and me and that keep us focused and in harness, moving forward step by step with Jesus in this journey of faith to which he's called us. This has been Church on the Edge with Dan Armistead, rethinking what church is and what church should be. If you like this episode, please leave a review at your preferred podcast provider. And you can find out more about this podcast as well as my articles, coming books, and more at danarmistead.com. And remember, it's all about Jesus and following him as his church on the edge.